Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber. This is episode 239 on the network right here, and Jim's fresh off of vacation, but he did do a show audience didn't know uh, last week when he was on vacation, so we appreciate the commitment to bringing our audience the best information they can possibly get. And while we're on that topic, 40,000-plus subscribers right now, 72 countries still. Uh, very appreciative of the impact they've made on our show, and they're showing us the impact we made on their lives as well. As a result, now we'll have our affiliates posted within the week, I hope, 200-plus uh, that have decided to affiliate with our network, which does two things. One, it rewards our hosts for the work they're putting in, and also rewards our audience because we affiliated with products and companies that are, number one, patriotic, and number two, that our audience is using on a day-to-day basis. So they'll get a little discount in terms of their normal everyday purchases, and then that'll help reward the podcast hosts that we have on this network to do such great work every week for you guys. So uh, with Jim, welcome back to the show. That was, uh, we were talking flow pre-show. I know we're going to hit on flow throughout the show. You and I were going back and forth on Facebook with a couple of topics this week, and flow happened to be one of them. Uh, but I uh, want to pay tribute to Fritz Chrysler there on the violin as our pre-show music we've been playing this week. Uh, I happened to just finish reading a, a great book on Ty Cobb, Terrible Beauty. It's my second time reading it and pulled out a tidbit from doing some research. I always look at the footnotes to see what other sources are cited. Happened to be a musical source and I read into it and uh, Ty Cobb's favorite violinist was Fritz Chrysler. And ironically, I have one record, violin record, and that's Fritz Chrysler on the violin. So you recognize some of the music audience if you're old enough if you're as old as we are you watch these old those old tom and jerry cartoons you'll recognize some of that background music uh from there as well so a little bit of culture a little bit of uh juvenile likes as well but uh, jim welcome back to your show oh thank you dave happy to be here yeah, yeah. so um you, you and i were we, we we i posted something on facebook earlier this week on the disjointed relationship between analytics and competitiveness and it was more along the lines of, you know, not, not say, there's a place for all of it, but when you're cramming analytics in the middle of competitiveness, it really inhibits the way somebody can compete and it breaks what you were, you were calling the, the attempt to get to that flow where that deep, the analytics are more for the deep study. So as a, as a result, you know, you, you had some great posts this week. I, I jokingly, but it's, there's truth in it. Um, you know, I, hard to find intelligent stuff on Facebook. Your stuff is always intelligent. I always say strong verbs, short sentences. That's what I like about your, your posts. So um, to talk, talk into or lead us into, if you, if you have a way that you want to re-enter it, do so, but get into, get into flow. How did you get into flow? Um, what are some, you know, some sources that you'd like to cite? And there's a, there's a particular relationship, obviously, that you've developed through your, your research uh, in flow. Well, I think it all started, I was a Junior in high school, and I remember back that uh, a lot of times because of whether it was basketball practice or baseball practice, I have a brother uh, who's the head coach at Don Bosco Prep in Ramsey, New Jersey currently, who also played professional baseball, Mike Rooney. He's 15 years younger than I am. So when I was in high school, uh, I would kind of look after him after school because both my mother and father worked I take them off my uh, grandmother's hand. So it, it put me in a habit of going during lunchtime, going to the library and getting all my homework done or whatever needed to be done so that I'd have uh, free time to take care of him. 
And one day I picked up a book. I was done with my work and I was looking up and down the, the aisles of the library and I, a, a book caught my eye and it was by a gentleman named George Leonard. I believe if my memory is correct, it was The Ultimate Warrior. And it was the first time that I read anything in a, in a structured way about uh, the mental skills and the mental aspects of sport. And uh, George Leonard, he was in his late 50s when he took up the uh, martial art Aikido, which was all about um, using the uh, opponent's force against your opponent. So you're just kind of redirecting energy. Uh, later read uh, deep into uh, different Aikido training books and stuff. Never took an actual Aikido class. It was more the interest in the mental side and the thought process. Then I read where the home run king from J Japan, Sadahara O, didn't take Aikido classes because there's a lot of rolling and falling on shoulders and he didn't want to get hurt during the season. But he had his hitting coach. Um, take Aikido classes. And his thought process, O's thought process was that the baseball's coming in at a particular force and he's not trying to overpower that force and turn it around. But if we use the term flow, he's trying to let the flow of energy through his body create enough bat speed to the, just use the baseball's force upon itself. And that, that kind of triggered everything. I read everything that George Leonard wrote at that time and usually what happens, different people are quoted or, or, or researched. And uh, I came across, I believe it was uh, a psychologist, University of Chicago. Uh, I'm not able to say his name, but he was the author. We'll, we'll call him uh, Dr. C. So he was the author of a book called Flow. He had a not so well-known book before that that I read. And at the end of the, the thing, what really intrigued me was that at the end of his 25 years of research, he stated that if he had simply paid attention when he was having his morning coffee on his back porch to his old Italian neighbor in Chicago tending to his tomato garden, he would have realized everything he needed to know about flow or being in the zone, the athletic zone, whichever, you know, way you want to call it. Um, and then it took me back to so many conversations I had with my father and a lot of what everybody was sharing was that it's focusing on the task at hand. Um, Dr. C here, I, uh, he identified six factors. What he was doing in his research was he was saying, uh, we know ultra marathoners and long distance runners, he would say accidentally um, fall into the flow, fall into the zone. Could we, act could we recreate through physical cues the mental process of being in the flow? And that's what he researched for at least 25 years. Um, he identified six factors. It was an intense and focused concentration on the present moment, emerging of action and awareness, a loss of reflective self-consciousness, a sense of personal control 
over the situation or activity. A distortion of temporal experience as one subject's experience of time is altered. Experience of the activity as rewarding, also referred to, he used the term autotelic experience. Um, so when I, when I read the book Flow, I then thought back into my, my own career and uh, it brought me back to a situation. I, I was pitching the uh, senior in high school, North Rockland High School in New York, um, suburb of New York City. And I, I'm cruising along. We're winning the game 2 nothing. High school games at that time were, like today, seven innings. I go to the go to the top of the seventh inning. I'm winning two nothing, and uh, usually what happens to young left-handers for whatever reason it seems like we all do it or have experienced it. I believe I walked the first two batters, if not the first three batters, in a two nothing game, and uh, two outs, bases loaded, and a right-handed batter came up. I believe he was the second or third batter in the lineup for Ramapo High School. I still remember his name, Tony Paleo. And this guy was a pretty good hitter. And yet, on a 1-2 count, I threw a pitch, a fastball low and away. I didn't understand at the time what had occurred. But it's as if time stood still. And... uh of course, I didn't know who Stephen Curry was back then, but I could have pulled a Stephen Curry and thrown the ball and just walked to the dugout because as soon as it left my fingertips, I knew that he had no chance of hitting it. But all of these factors that Dr. C spoke of just emerged into that one moment. Time stood still. I thought everything was in slow motion. There was no thought process whatsoever. Everything just clicked, and my body did what it was trained to do. And it was. It was uh, the batter double clutched, and the ball was by him, and it was strike three, and we won the uh, the sectional championship at that time. So because it triggered those thoughts, I started doing more and more research on my own. Um, and this even led to me to... Um, into the creative process of even, even in the art world, writers, painters, sculptors, architects, anybody that had any form of uh, the creative process going on. And uh, actually I had a friend back then um, who had a uh, online magazine and it talked about this creative process. And uh, this person interviewed all type of creative individuals all over the world. Um, and then I had the idea, Hey, do you want to, you want to interview Cal Ripken Jr. Because, you know, it just broke Lou Gehrig's record. And I'm sure at different moments in time, he's going to speak to you about similar experiences. So one thing led to another. And I thought of back then, especially when I got into pro ball, that, uh, we used to refer to pitching as the art of pitching. Well, that had to have come from somewhere. Somewhere somebody had experienced something where they felt as if pitching was an art form. 
So I then cross-reference different things from the art world to the creative process, the whole thing. And this further entrenched me in this whole um, deep-seated thought process that this is all about flow. And then I read the book Flow again, and it just came down to so many different things. Um, and like I said, I, I used to think back even then to my youth when my, my father would say things like, um, if you don't feel well, get up, throw cold water in your face and shine your shoes. And now you're a young 10, 11, 12 year old boy, and you have no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. You're thinking, is that reality or a metaphor? Exactly. And then you start <laughs> to realize every single thing that he attempted to teach me in his way was about focusing on the task at hand. And if you do that, things will turn out okay. It's hard nowadays, I think, and, you know, more, I guess more challenging because of the amount of input these people, these, I guess, kids, adults, everybody has, and you have to have a great filter to be able to do that. You mentioned the art of pitching and we're talking flow. And I, and I happen to mention the Facebook conversation that kind of started a little bit of this conversation with us has the way, or is the way that we deal with pitching nowadays, pick a level. Does that inhibit the way, or does that, does that almost prevent us from maybe ever reaching flow with pitching? Well, um, I believe so. Yes. Because especially with the younger age athletes, they become overloaded with information and the focus of their attention then comes onto some number like what's my spin rate or what's my exit velocity. Now, those things in itself are not bad things, but they should be confirmation to what an individual is feeling like, we didn't win the game because someone gave us a trophy at the end. You know, we won the game because pitch by pitch, we were focused, we paid attention, and we played to our abilities. And sometimes when we do that, we allow the opposition the opportunity to lose. When that comes together, it's by each pitch and by each focus and by each attention and by us feeling and be part of the process that's how we end up being successful. Um, but when you see young players, you know, coming back to the dugout and going over their dad, who's got their pocket radar and, you know, what was my velocity that inning? And it was for the sake of, I'm um, trying to throw as hard as I can. Now we know we're, we're, we're on the wrong path. Um, I use modern technology in, with my clients but it's all a confirmation of how do we feel. It's all a confirmation of if we give an individual a physical cue, uh, for example, knee up, ball out, or, or, or something basic um, to start, and it produces the proper feel, which then produces the proper performance, then we could look at the technology and see your extension out front was this, your spin rate was this, your arm angle was here, 
we can use that with um, with whether it's the pitch AI software to uh, Diamond Kinetics Baseball. I mean, it doesn't even have to be an expensive mode of technology. Uh, but of course, there's more expensive modes and and very good products out there that will help you along that way. But they should be a confirmation of how you feel and how you repeat how you feel. And since we don't do that, I related to a story of when I was coaching in winter ball in Venezuela. And uh, at the time uh, in Venezuela, there was the, uh, there was really no middle class. So it was the wealthy and the poor. And we're on the, we're on the bus going somewhere. And I happened to look out the window and three kids, uh, three young boys are playing baseball on the cobblestone street with a, half a broomstick and the head of a baby doll. And yet there's no parent there. There's nobody telling them what to do. They're just there having fun doing their thing. And um, you could say that, you know, by chance, they will accidentally get into the flow state just because of the beauty and the focus that they have of playing and obviously trying to catch a non-round ball, a doll's head on a cobblestone street. Um, when we when we place young ball players in such structured environments, we we start reducing the opportunities for them initially in their sports career to accidentally stumble into the flow, into the zone. So if they have not experienced being in that flow, in that athletic zone, uh, being part of the creative process of what they're doing, how do we then speak to them about how we're going to give them physical cues to try to recreate that feel and help them get into the zone by a standardized process for themselves instead of by accident? Because most most of their cues now are external. They're from a right from a an instructor telling them what looks right, feels right from a number on a gun or a uh, a spin rate. Um, yeah, it, it's it's tough to find that. I, I agree with you. I think it's a great point, um, very well articulated for our audience. What um, you use technology, and I do too. How do you how do you reverse that process with? people that are coming to work with you, young or old? I mean, how do you, because they, they've obviously come to you with experiences from outside people. So you almost have to unteach them, if, if I'm not mistaken, what they've experienced before so they can fully appreciate what you're trying to provide to them. Yes. My use of the technology is I take a specific thing that we're working on so instead of them looking at um, some data face on a computer or a laptop and seeing, you know, a hundred numbers in front of them, I take one aspect of it and it refers to something we've been working on and that individual has developed the feel so that they understand how it feels and then the particular number 
let's say, um, release point extension out front relates to an individual getting their center of gravity past their front hip and the pitching delivered. So the number confirms that we're feeling the, the proper thing. Um, when the technology and the numbers are used in that way, they, they are quite helpful because different people learn different ways. There's people that are audio, visual, feel, everything. And the numbers can give us a benchmark of what we're looking to attain by creating the proper feel. Uh, I think nowadays what happens is the numbers become too much part of the process and then it becomes an over uh, analyzation of what we're attempting to do and we never create the proper feel. And if we don't, if we never create the proper feel, we're never going to, we're never going to get into the flow or into the athletic zone. And the crazy thing about it, when you take something as repetitive as baseball, I'm sure that um, you've heard people speak. Um, I believe a couple of weeks ago, I heard David Cohn just relay the thought process that was going through his head when he threw his perfect game. So we'll take a perfect game because obviously the result is outstanding. You know, 27 up, 27 down, no walks, no hit batters, no errors, no hits. He can almost recreate for you what batter, what inning, what pitch. It just flows in his mind. It's like stamped on there forever. And I truly believe it's because during that day, during that game, during each inning, during each pitch, I'll just use the term, everything was simply flowing. There wasn't really a thought process. There wasn't really a, a thinking or an analysis of what my mechanics are or what this is or what that is. Everything just flowed. So think back now. You go to a, you go to a little league um, a little league field, travel ball tournament, any game where a whole bunch of young guys are playing. And you run into coaches that they're really good guys or volunteers. They're doing their best to try to help the kids. But all the teaching is somewhat negative-based, and they're attempting to teach complex concepts to a young child in a competitive environment. It just doesn't mesh. It doesn't work. Then you go to their practices and their practices do not recreate anything that goes on in the game. So how would you expect a young ball player to react to something that he's never experienced because you haven't taught him what the process is during the during the proper training periods. Um, and I know, you know, time is of an essence and we all live busy lives and the whole thing. But that gets to the thought of 
if we place players, young players, in a competitive environment before they can feel what they're supposed to be doing, it's going to be very difficult for them in that environment to learn the process of what they're supposed to be doing. And in an end, if we relate it to Dr. C's book, The Flow, it's going to be very difficult for them to ever really experience that. And if you don't experience it, how can you try to physically do things to um, recreate it? it? It becomes impossible. I think the, there's such an inertia for immediate success, whether it's individually or like you're talking with a team, you get a group of young kids together and <clears throat> whether it's lack of knowledge or ego, that coach is trying to win the eight-year-old championship or the 12-year-old championship, as opposed to saying, I'm just a cog in the wheel. I've got to help this kid experience how to field ground balls properly or how to throw properly and catch properly or, you know, use of cutoffs or run the bases, the, the, the little things and kind of building blocks. By the time you get these kids when they're 14, 15, they are a jumbled mess in terms of their development. And as you, you stated, there's a, there's a real, there's not a real good chance they're going to ever find flow because they don't even know their true north. They've never experienced it. Um, I've got a question for you. This is something I knew you and I are kindred spirits with this uh, particular topic. When once it once a, a person learns the necessary has the necessary tools and is allowed to experience that what it feels like to do something properly give them a chance for flow and they they've reached a certain stage. I'm a big proponent, and you kind of touched on it, which is why I want to I brought it up. Creating game like experiences. I'm a firm believer that using chaos properly allows for that creativity that we're talking about. And I, I like to use the word genius. People cringe when the word genius is run. I think everybody, when they're little, has some genius in them. And unfortunately, I think adults ruin it for them. They, they, they uh, push it out of them, stress it out of them, or train them improperly. But how important, once they've learned that feel, how important is chaos to the scenario to help them get flow or that game-like scenario? Well, I'll give you an example uh, in what I use in some of my training methods. So we take a young guy through all the different exercises, warm-up, specific uh, throwing drills that are uh, conducive for that individual's success and how they should do things. And we're on flat ground. We're doing a variety of drills and, and, and throwing programs. They get to a point where they're truly in control of their lower half. They're not rushing to the front side. They have direction. They have balance. Front side and the back side are working together. Uh, and they've reached that, okay, it's time to take that to the hill, take that to the mound. And it's amazing how... 10 inches, current mound is 10 inches high. So that 10 inch slope does exactly what you're talking about. It creates enough chaos to where it's like, now we have to really work hard on taking 
what we can do on flat ground in our drills and incorporate the increased force that's created by the slope without us even trying. So that pitching mound to some can become their best friend and to some it becomes their worst enemy. Um, the chaos, I believe, is the is one of the final factors that the person learns to a, to adjust by not thinking about adjusting, but by the body reacting in the way that it's trained to react. Um, it's it. and obviously you've got to train, and I should have preset it. We're talking about, you know, a, a, a man or woman, whoever's pitching, whoever's playing, gaining expertise in a controlled environment first, obviously, as we're talking, develop that feel. And then once they've ex- exhibited a certain amount of expertise, now the chaos makes sense because they have references to call back on as we're talking about. I didn't mean to interrupt yeah, you too no, much. No, it's, it's interesting you brought it up because one of the topics I wanted to hit on uh, today is um, – I experienced it last week. I, I, I did a post on Facebook at Rooney Baseball. I have a 14-year-old ball player. He's an outstanding athlete, quite physically mature for his age. I mean, there's some factors. He's, he's possibly three times stronger in his pushing movements than his pulling movements, so there's an imbalance there that when we first met, uh, limited his, uh, his ability for the hand to drop into external rotation because the internal rotators, the pressing muscles in the front of the body were so tight. And, uh, I met him a while back. Uh, his dad was, uh, referred to me by a, another person's, uh, the client's dad that knew him. He threw for me, and the reason why he wanted to work on pitching was that he's third baseman, plays all over the field, played some shortstop. And he just wanted to, as he was approaching middle school, the tryouts and travel ball, to add pitching to the repertoire because he has a very good arm, so the coaches naturally wanted him to pitch anyway. There was a lot of mechanical issues that I saw, and uh, a lot of it was uh, he led with his elbow. There's different things in his arm action that were incorrect. The, the catapult pushing motion out front had to be corrected. And as the story goes, uh, didn't hear from him for a while. Thought for sure he was going to really dive into doing some lessons with me. And uh, dad sends me a text that um, he had to have Tommy John. So... He basically went that summer, um, was busy as can be with ball, which is totally understandable. Him and the dad thought, you know, they'd start some lessons with me in the fall after a season was over. But the coaches, I believe, pitched him a lot, even though he really wasn't a pitcher. And sure enough, he, uh, he was injured. So after he was released by his doctor and his physical therapist, and he was supposed to be moving into the throwing program and all the standardized throwing type of 
activities and exercises that you do to rehab from Tommy John. The dad called me up and said, could you oversee his throwing program? I said, no problem. I love this young man. He's quite a competitor, but the first day we were together, it was like he was attempting to cram nine months of rehab in one throwing session. You know, sometimes we use the term, he, he's trying to hit a 10 run home run with the bases loaded. You know, it's just, it's not possible. We finally reached a point in time that mentally I could get him to just relax. Everything's going to be good. Just relax. Don't try so hard. Let's take it easy. So as we moved through his throwing program and then he started with his flat ground work and he's attempted to repeat his delivery and do different things. It was quite obvious that he was very limited in external rotation of his front hip, his land leg, and this was causing a tightness in his back leg that was set to follow through. So his follow through, instead of being rotational with the hips, was very linear. The foot dragged off the rubber and the hips, he got through the front side, but in a pole vault type action, it, it, was a, it was a struggle to get through the front side. And by pole vaulting, there was a slight elevation of that, of that front and then back hip, which then caused an elevation of his elbow above his shoulder. And now we discover this is where the catapult action was born because of the limited hip mobility that he had. We immediately went to work, prescribed them some exercises, did some hip mobility work. He's an extremely hard worker. The pass-through throwing sessions, um, I joke with him. I said, see, now you've, you've reached your pitching epiphany. You've had your epiphany. He knows how it feels. And I did a post a couple of days ago, and even though it was still photography, because the trouble I run into with Facebook is that you can't post a uh, well, I haven't figured it out yet. You can't post two videos side by side. Uh, it's always one video at a time. Just to compare when I first met him to what he did, did just a couple of days ago. And this is what I term because he's an athlete. And once we got the hips to work properly, what I term a self-correction. All of a sudden, his arm action and his arm slot and where his elbow is supposed to be is right on the mark without him doing anything in his thought process or in anything to focus on, oh, I got to get my arm here. So it brought me back to the, the greatest example that I experienced with what I call this self-correction uh, in athletes is my first year as pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. We had a first round draft pick. Yeah, it was out of a small high school. He was a phenomenal athlete. He could have went to college, Division One, to play soccer, hockey, or baseball. And the schools that he could have went to were tops in the country in those respected sports. While I was the coordinator, the director of scouting sent me, he used to send me, we couldn't, send videos like we do nowadays. So it was hundreds and hundreds of DVDs and I'd watch them and break down all the deliveries of, let's say the top hundred pitchers in the country that were eligible for that upcoming draft. And he specifically said to me, uh, before you do the stuff, I need you. So I, I presented my stuff just blindly. I didn't know anything about any of these players. I just watched their video. 
And then when I was done and put my reports in, he asked me about a particular individual because they were considering making him the, uh, I think it was the maybe the fifth pick uh, in the country. And the problem that they kept discussing was that he threw about two and a half feet across his body. So the Brewers as an organization had already had prior history of, of first round picks, you know, never making it to the big leagues because they got hurt in uh, a ball or whatever. And a lot of it were mechanical issues or different things that, that occurred. Um, so I asked in a meeting one time, it was a, actually a conference call. I said, um, when this guy plays hockey, is he a right defenseman? Because he's a right-handed pitcher. And they said, uh, uh, yeah, why, why does that matter? I said, well, when you're a defenseman, does he have a big slap shot? Yes, he does. Okay. In his, in his mind, and the way his body functions right now is, when you take a slap, slap shot, your front, front skate is probably two, two and a half feet across from your back. And in a way you're creating a lot of torque. That's the way you're supposed to take a slap shot. Um, but in throwing a baseball, obviously that's, that, that's a hazard. So they did take him in with the, with the first round pick. Uh, I first met him. He was, he was a great kid, great young man. And, uh, Part of our discussions is he always told me about how people said you can't throw across your body, you can't throw your card. So it became the focus of everything he was doing. And in his mind, because he's only 18 years old, he's saying, well, if you're saying I'm so bad, why, did, why does everybody say I'm so good? Common response, because it's the first time somebody, but the focus was always on that front side. And that land like, I mean, he, he, even after I was working with him, he'd pitch a game in instructional ball and, uh, he wasn't quite there yet. We were working on it and he was still throwing across his body, not two and a half feet across his body. And, uh, a higher up in the organization took him aside and says, listen, if you continue to throw like this, you're going to end up getting hurt and your, you know, your dreams are over. You better fix it. So in a way, it kind of set what I was doing back a couple of months as far as with him mentally to trust me and what we're, we're going to do. The main thing I focus on with him is let's just control our lower half and let's prove, improve our, our balance and our posture. And uh, that's it. We'll see how it goes. And sure enough, because of his athleticism, as soon as he learned to control his front side, control his lower half, put his foot down, and then accelerate through the front side, instead of pushing off that rubber as hard as possible, everything self-corrected, never threw across his body. Um, Does that go into, I know we, we, we've got a, well, actually you introduced me to Dr. Ickes. He talks about arrows out and that self-communication and this is going to be, this is actually contrary to what he says, but I don't know another way to phrase it. He, well, he, he advises not to use the word don't. Well, I agree. And what's really funny is I have a, 
I have a statement in front of me going back to uh, flow. It's, it's now even a term used in psychology. But the first three words of this statement says, in positive psychology, a flow state, also known as being in the zone, is a mental state in which a person performing some activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized, focused, full involvement, and the enjoyment of the process. The second word in that statement says positive. From my experience, the more we stay in the negative, words like don't, the more we get stuck there. And none of this positive stuff or this flow state is possible. Because our mind, whether you, whether you want to call it the voice in your head, I believe it's the id or whatever, it's, it's taken up a place in the world of negativity, and it doesn't allow for all this positive stuff to happen. Um, so what I try to do is, for each individual, I try to come up with a verbal cue. It's, it's like a phys- that relates to a physical cue. I can remember um, one year in pro ball, I had I had this habit. It's this I I don't know why it occurred, but um, I started professional baseball. I threw forty consecutive innings without even giving up an unearned run. Um, it was all over the sporting news. Jim Palmer talked about it as the color commentator during a World Series and, and things. I went to instruction of all twice when it used to be the top um, twenty five prospects in an organization. And I went, uh, my first instruction, well, I went 40 innings without giving up a run. To me, it was, it, it was, they only asked me to throw five innings. So I was like, wow, this is like a vacation. And my second instruction of all, I went 36 innings without giving up a run. So there was these periods of time, uh, one spring training, even though it was spring training, I went 25 consecutive innings without giving up a run. The reason I bring it up is because to me, these were flow states, <laughs> And it was all triggered when I, when I got into this athletic zone by almost me hitting a point. I don't use the term balance point, but for the, for the listener, I guess it's the easiest way to try to visualize it. My knee was up, my ball was out, and my whole process, I wasn't thinking about my delivery, about the hitter, about nothing. All that came through my mind was that the hitter had absolutely no chance. It was, it was just flowing right out of me. And I credit a lot I read in this Dr. C's book, Flow. I read his research. I read George Leonard. And I had experienced that state. I, I experienced it a few times on a basketball court going for a rebound. Uh, I experienced it. Uh, um, doing triathlons, you know, when I was older. But my point is, is that because I had the experience of being in the flow, I learned my own verbal cue, which created a physical cue, a feel, a feel. And then it just happened. There was no thought process. There was no, there's no anything, you know, the thought process was the catcher and I are in the same you know, that's another thing about flow. Pitcher gets into a game in, in my day, and uh, 
he's he's communicating with the catcher and the catcher because he's caught you enough and you have a relationship and you talk things over you get into a game and a lot of the great games that you end up pitching is like you never shook the catcher off once but he always put down the signal for the pitch that you wanted to throw um you know, stating back to guys like David Cohn and, and individuals that threw perfect games or no hitters. Sometimes you hear in the post game interview when the pitcher says, I never had to say the catcher off once. And it's not because the catcher in those days was calling all the shots. The catcher was completely on the same page as the pitcher and what they wanted to do. And there's another example for me, as far as it just flowed, it just, it was there and it happened. And that's why when we live in the world of negativity and we use words like don't, you know, the classic story of the, the old pitching coach comes to the mound and says, listen, this guy's a great curveball hitter. Don't hang a curveball. And what is, what's the pitcher doing on the second pitch? He hangs a curveball. There's things that we get stuck. Um, briefly in the past, we, we've touched on the different quadrants of focus and different things like that. But the important thing to take away from it is that if we put young players in a structured competitive environment too early um, before they've created their athleticism, before they learn how to move properly, before they've had some accidental experiences of being in the flow, we we're we're kind of creating an environment where it's going to be very difficult for them to ever get there and got to slow it down. There's a point you made and I know you're a basketball person as well. And your wife was a storied basketball player um, on the women's side with, with DePaul. We, um, if you remember that Kentucky Duke game where uh, Kentucky had the, they had that great run to the sweet 16 and Leitner had that perfect game um, to use a baseball term didn't miss a shot from the field, didn't miss it from the free throw line. That last play where Grant Hill threw the full length pass and everybody got on Rick Pitino about didn't, he didn't put a guy on the ball. And he was very, very eloquent with his response. He's like, no, that was not a mistake. We did exactly what we wanted. The mistake I made was I gave them the instruction in the huddle. And before they went out, I said to them, whatever you do, don't foul. And he goes, and if you look at the last picture when Leitner rose above, he goes, I've got three guys surrounding Leitner. And all three of them had their hands on their shoulder. Not a single one of them left their feet to contest the shot. And he was cognizant enough after the fact to say, that was the mistake I made. I told them, don't foul. And that's exactly what they did. They didn't foul. And uh, as a result, didn't contest the shot. So it, 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 it doesn't leave the level. But I like the point, and I hope our, young, our audience is listening. We're in such a hurry to get these kids out there to do something that we think resembles baseball. Um, I mean, we do it with all the sports that these, these kids need to learn the basic stuff in a controlled environment where maybe it's just, you know, pitcher, catcher, first base, learning to uh, integrate together. Maybe it's just throwing and catching. There's so many things to learn that our, our current structure in the U.S. to develop players is, as we talked about in the show, is counterintuitive to developing flow and, and uh, I, I appreciate all you brought to the table today. I think it was very well stated today. Yes, I, I think, Dave, that, you know, in closing, in a perfect world, practices would be in a, in a structured, controlled environment, and 
and the people would learn, the young player would learn how to feel what they're doing and repeat what they're doing. And we, we take all the positive steps that we've, we've discussed over the past couple of weeks. And then the initial competitive environment for young players, there shouldn't be any adults around. There shouldn't be any coaches. There shouldn't be, <laughs> it would be like playing a stickball game or a wiffle ball game. Kids go have fun. Now, of course, there's some, adult supervision to mediate when things go wrong uh, and the, you know, the arguments and the competitiveness, you know, kind of erupts and overflows, but the, the sake of competing with their newly acquired skills is not structured by adults. A hitter should never, a hitter should never stand up, up on the, stand up at the plate, just miss two pitches, foul him straight back, and then the pitcher makes a, a good pitch low and away, and the umpire maybe gives a couple inches or so and calls it strike three, and then the kid with his head down walks back to the dugout, and either in the dugout or the first base coach says, well, got to get up on the plate. What do you expect? Nothing positive comes out of that. Right. As we've stated before, especially in young young ball players, if after a negative experience, a negative outcome, even if the adult attempts to make a positive correction, it's going to be viewed in process as a negative because they're in that negative emotional world that they just failed. Yeah. And that's why I say in a perfect world, young kids first taste of, of competitive baseball or competitive athletics should be with limited amount of adult super supervision. I, I mean, the thought of actually attempting to correct something during the competition is absurd enough, but words for the most part, even in practice, even in the greatest practice you've ever had, words get in the way. Words mean different things to different people. Words are processed. Words, um, one coach might say, use this word to do something. Another coach might use that word. One child processes that word meaning this. Another child processes it meaning this. Um, an example of that is... During my years as pitching coordinator, dealing with uh, uh, Latino ball players that did not speak or understand English initially, once they did something correctly, yes, we have Latin coaches or different interpreters or whatever. But because of the language barrier, you're not really using a lot of words to teach them or instruct them. But then we go to the English-speaking player and we inundate them with words, with presentations, with slideshows, with analytics, with numbers, 
and then we expect that they're going to have the ability to get in the flow, a state that quite possibly they haven't experienced yet because they've been in a controlled structure and environment since they're four or five years old playing t-ball. And you can say it's passion. You can say all the reasons why Latin ball players have become so successful as far as the a lot of the true superstars of the game of baseball now. Um, I, I have my own theory, and I think it goes back to that as young kids, they're not in a structured, in structured environment. They're not being told what to do by adults. It's not all, uh, you know, paint by numbers and do this and do that. And they experience being in the flow by accident, like every young, young child will do whatever they're doing, whether they're drawing with their crayons in their coloring book or whatever. They get part of the creative process. They feel it. And then as adults, just like when you acquire a variety of motor skills, you then give yourself a foundation to acquire more physical motor skills as an adult quicker and easier. I think the same thing happens with the mental skills. Um, You know, it's like what, at Rooney Baseball, I say, you know, focus on the next pitch, whether you're going to throw it, hit it, or field it. That's the beauty of baseball. The only thing that really matters is the next pitch. And that's what led me to stumble upon Dr. Curtix with his book, Win the Next Pitch. And, you know, as I've said before, a, 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 what was expected to be a 10 or 15-minute phone conversation with, with Dr. Kurt when we first met turned into almost a three or four hour conversation because we just went real deep into a lot of this. And as I said at the beginning of the show, it all relates back to, uh, to the old Czechoslovakian guy doing 25 years of research and then turning around and saying, if I just paid attention to my Italian neighbor tending to his tomato garden, I would have realized exactly what I was researching. Yeah, that that's a. I think it's a great way to to tie it up for our audience and um, gr- great show today. I mean, I, I think flow is something that you hear put out there, but very few people will will break it down and touch on it because it it, it can be abstract. But I, I like the way you, you narrowed it for the audience today, uh, Jim. How can how can we support you? How can the audience support you? How can they find you on social and in in real life too? Well. Um... The easiest way is uh, email, coachjim at rooneybaseball.com. You can see some of my posts and some of my past experiences either on my website, uh, rooneybaseball.com, or on Facebook, at Rooney Baseball. Um, Audience, feel free to text me questions. I've done plenty of online uh, video analysis. I've spoken to people in uh, Zoom calls or FaceTime calls to go over some things. Currently, I'm helping out uh, a couple of baseball agents that uh, either played for me or or grew up near where I grew up and uh, helping them break down um, different things in video, different things in thought process. And sometimes it's just a conversation about introducing them to flow and focus on the next pitch instead of being so carried away with everything else that's going on. Well, I think your influence is needed out there and I appreciate you 
utilizing your your knowledge, your research, your experiences on this network and on this show in particular to touch our 40,000 plus subscribers. And I would encourage our audience, uh, take advantage of it. And I mean that in a positive way. Uh, I'm a big believer in Jim, as, as our audience knows. And um, I think he's a resource that if you, if you have a way to reach out and you've got a young player that needs attention, this is the right guy to, to talk to. So I know my, the biggest compliment I can give to people is I'd leave my kids with them. And I know they'd come back better. So, Jim, we appreciate you on the network with Real Voice of the Game. And, and Toe the Rubber has become a very popular show. Uh, for our audience. Thanks for all your contributions to the network and the time you put into the show. Um, episode, 240, uh, episode 240 will be up next uh, with Wiley and Will. This is episode 239, Toe the Rubber, with Jim Rooney. Jim, thanks so much for another great effort today. Thank you, Dave, and we'll see you all next week.